Thanks for joining us here at the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit our website, lightsandiego.com. So we're going to be beginning a new chapter in our intention series. The next couple of weeks, we're going to be talking about a biblical vision for singleness. And for those of you who are not married and you've been with us the last couple of weeks, thank you for journeying with us. And for those who are married, we're going to ask you to do the same thing. For you to come along with us the next couple of weeks for us to discover and maybe rediscover God's intention behind those who are called into what the Bible calls is a gift of singleness. And we have uh, some pretty loud voices wanting to define uh, what we are to think about those who are not married. Uh, we have a, uh, a kind of a secular cultural narrative as well as kind of a traditional religious narrative, both of which sometimes stray away from what Jesus intended for our understanding of his vision and his purpose for singleness. Um, and so we're going to be breaking this up into two weeks. The first week we're going to be talking about the cultural vision for marriage versus a biblical vision for marriage. We're going to be talking about kind of the interpersonal experience for those who are single specifically, um, who exist within the church. And then also how, as a church, we can have a response, a familial response to that. Next week we're going to be talking a little bit about singleness within longing. Uh, singleness within dating for those who uh, that's a journey that you're on Um, and lastly we're going to be talking about singleness within the kingdom of God so excited for next week but for this week we want to dive into these to these themes and in order to kind of set the table we have to be able to talk about the difference between the cultural narrative of singleness versus a biblical vision of singleness Um, a little bit of a disclaimer here Uh, what we're going to be talking about not all of it, but some of it might be some mature content. So if you're watching this with your kids and maybe they're younger than high school age, you might just want to be able to watch this first. Also, I wanted to let you know that I understand that I'm teaching on singleness from a vantage point as a married man. Jen and I have been married for over 15 years. Um, so I wanted to let you know that this sermon has been written within the context of community. I didn't write this on my own, on my couch someday. This has come through lots of research, lots of conversation within leaders within our church who are single, um, both uh, those who've not been married, those who've been divorced, those who've lost uh, spouses, and have asked them to help contribute to what we're going to be talking about today. Um, Also want to just briefly uh, just answer the question, why? Why are we going to be spending two Sundays talking about the concept of singleness? Few reasons. Number one is that God's word, uh, all of it, is to you. So if you're married, God's word on marriage and singleness is to you. And if you're single, God's word on marriage and singleness is to you. And so we can't just find the parts that we feel like apply to us. We have to continue to let the whole word of God shape our understanding and our hearts. Um, secondly, half of our church um, are people who are not married, not yet married, who've previously been married. And so we want to make sure that they receive as much time and as much honor um, as those who've been poured into the last couple of weeks. 
Um, also recognizing that those who are single in their 20s are going to have a different experience of singleness for those who are in their 30s or 40s or 50s or 70s. And we're going to hopefully do a, a good job of kind of spanning that, that width of experience. Um, and then also, similarly to marriage, we have to recognize the large, largely secular narrative around singleness versus how to understand what the Bible has to say about it. So let's talk about first and foremost, about the cultural vision for singleness. Some statistics from the Pew Research Center and from Barna, uh, just to let us know kind of culturally where we are, is at the current moment, 31% of adults in America are single. Um, the higher education that you have, the more likelihood that you are to remain single. 50% uh, of those who are single currently are not looking for a relationship. 25% of adults in our nation have been divorced. 65% of Americans thinks it's a good idea to live with a partner before marriage to continue their singleness. Um, in 2021, the average age for a marriage for females was 33 and for males was 35 compared to 20 years ago when females were 25 and males were 26. So we're seeing the age of people entering into marriage versus singleness start to grow. And there's a good reason for that is that society's view of singleness is continuing to be elevated. You don't, for, for thousands of years, marriage was largely this social rite of passage. Um, and that has been really pressed up against, again, uh, within our society. Um, but for different reasons than what the Bible says. Dr. Carla Manley, recently in a New York Times article talking about singleness, says this, even outside monogamy, Casual dating, courtship, chasing potential love, interest takes energy and time. When you're not seeking partnership, you are in a very relaxed, calm inner space and generally more comfortable with who you are. You're not trying to impress anyone and you're not trying to please anyone except that inner being. And the large gist of his article was essentially saying, why would you waste your time or spend your time pursuing relationships and you can invest all of that time on you. And so there is this, again, this heightened value for singleness within secular society, but it's largely based on the assumption that you can have more time and energy and resources spent on you instead of it being wasted on another, which varies different than um, kind of the, the biblical version of, of marriage that essentially says, uh, if, you are, if you are not married, then that means there's a level of restraint that you have sexually, um, what your call and your purpose is. And so I want to explore that. Sam Alberry has written an amazing book called Seven Myths About Singleness. And in his book, he talks about these two contrasting views. He says, from the point of view of Christianity, to be single means being both unmarried and committed for as long as we remain unmarried to sexual abstinence. The Bible is clear that sex outside of marriage is sinful, something that is underlined in the teachings of Jesus. To be single is to refrain from any sexual behavior. If you're single long-term, as a Christian, that means being sexually abstinent long-term. This is very different from predominantly secular culture around us, which holds that to be single involves the former, being unmarried, but not the latter, sexual abstinence. And since marriage is often seen as a constraint in many ways, being single in a secular context can be thought of as a positive boon. You have the freedom to find sexual fulfillment without any of the commitments that come with marriage. 
You're free to play the field in whichever way you think will make you happy. A prominent British journalist on broadcaster, Mariella Frostrup, describes singleness as a solvency, great sex, and guilt-free life. And so we have to ask ourselves some questions. If, if we are to live into the biblical vision of singleness, is that vision compelling and true, or is it dangerously oppressive? How does the church live out the biblical vision for singleness? And then how can I, how can you as an individual, whether you're married or single, adjust our vision and framework of singleness to align with God's? So let's talk a little bit about the biblical vision for singleness. And I think for for me growing up, I never heard this taught. This was honestly a shock to me when I started looking into this a few years back is that the Bible has an incredibly high view of marriage. And the reason why that's significant is because the context in which the Bible was written in. Think about it. It was written in a traditional Eastern culture that valued marriage as a, as a sociological transaction that would benefit not just the individual, but the family. So to value singleness in an ancient culture uh, was incredibly rare. A matter of fact, it was incredible. It was explicitly unique to the Christian vision. So when Jesus shows up on the scene, again, um, steeped in a traditional Jewish culture, the way he talks about singleness, and then later on Paul talks about singleness, is incredibly uh, profound, specifically for 2,000 years ago. I'm going to read you Matthew 19. Based on the context, Jesus is talking about marriage and divorce, but then he starts getting into singleness, and I think this will help frame uh, Jesus' vision for how he sees singles. So Matthew 19, verse 3 says, Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Which was a, which was a common interpretation of a verse in Deuteronomy. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man can give his wife a certificate for divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that every, anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. The male commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if this is a situation between a husband and a wife, it is better not to marry. Now, pause. What Jesus said right here in this moment would have been shocking to the original audience because women didn't have the right to divorce in that culture. Only men did. And one of the, uh, one of the really popular interpretations of that law was any and every reason meant that literally there one rabbi's writing saying that even if a wife burns a piece of toast, the husband could divorce the wife. So you can imagine the oppression of the patriarchy in that day of men could just do whatever they want and get away scots free. And all of a sudden Jesus says, if you do that, if a man divorces his wife, other than for a very, very small select few reasons, you are guilty, not her. You are the guilty party. The disciples are so shocked by this, they just said, well, who should marry? And then Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word. And, and there's debate on whether that word is referring to being married or it's referring to what's coming next. But only to those whom whom it has been given, this idea of gift. 
For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others. And there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept this. So all of a sudden Jesus turns the conversation, starts talking about eunuchs, uh, which is kind of an interesting part of a culture that does not exist anymore. Uh, but they were people who, for the sake of serving the king of that day, um, had their genitals cut off as a way to allow them to never be married, to not be any sort of threat to the kingly line or to sleep with anyone in the king's harem. Uh, but Jesus goes a step further and says that there are, eunuchs, there are those who choose to live like them, essentially live into singleness. And he refers that as a gift, those who choose not to marry for the sake of the kingdom of God. Again, a revolutionary idea in the ancient context. But Jesus goes a step further beyond his blessing singleness, is saying this is a gift for those who can receive it. He goes a step further by actually not just teaching about singleness, but catch this, modeling it. I don't know if you've ever realized this, but you follow a single rabbi. The, the picture we have of the fullest human life to have ever existed, that of Jesus Christ, has no spouse and no children. And so when we think of the highest form of human flourishing, we can't look at marriage or children as that status. And to be honest, within traditional church culture, we've elevated the status of marriage and kids to, to the point of some people would even say idolatry. It's this point that you're not fully living until you would do that. And we need to actually repent for that. Marriage is blessed and it's good. We've talked about that the last few weeks. But Jesus in this passage says, listen, you have thought about marriage incorrectly and as well as you need to rethink the idea of those who live as single people for the sake of the kingdom of God. It is a gift, not just in Jesus' teachings, but in the model Jesus came to live. I mean, what a beautiful picture that the highest form of human life we could ever model ourselves after is himself single. So if you're single watching this, your ability to live like Christ is unique in your ability to live into that. But it doesn't just stop with Jesus. Paul gives us an example as well. The other passage that talks most about singleness is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I'm going to read you a portion of it. Paul, who his, is himself single, we think at one time he probably was married and around the time of his conversion that his wife may have left him. And as he's writing to the Corinthians at this time, he doesn't have a wife. And he says this, I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift and another has that. Do you see the, the phrasing of gift? The singleness is a gift. Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. Uh, skipping down to verse 28, he says this, but if you do marry, you have not sinned, thank God for me, and if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life. And I want to spare you of this. Now, a quick note on this. Oftentimes, people who are single and longing for marriage uh, fail to recognize, as well as those who are married and long to be single, that singleness comes with both gifts and burdens and marriage comes with gifts and burdens. And what we often do is we compare the gifts of singleness to the burdens 
of marriage or vice versa. We compare the burdens we have in marriage to the gift of singleness and we can't do that. Each of them are a gift and each of them have unique blessings and unique burdens that God is calling us to live into with his agenda. And so I wanted to kind of just begin the conversation with this. We need to elevate, as the church, elevate our vision of singleness to match that of the Bible. That those who are single are not somehow in this waiting room to start life. A matter of fact, the Bible may argue that they have a sense of life that is unique to the kingdom of God that we ought to learn from, those who are married. Now, I've talked a lot about how singleness is a gift in the biblical context, but I, I want to pause right here because I recognize that those who are watching this who are single might have this sense of like, that, that, that short-sighted. It's like, how do you, how, who are you to talk about singleness being a gift? And I recognize that I come from a unique vantage point. So I want to share some of the conversations, some of the reading that I've done, um, different books that have been recommended to me that really portray singleness well. One of them being from Kate Wharton, her book, Single Minded, Being Single, Whole, and Living Life to the Full, describes just some of the tensions that single people face in our culture. She says, when we have to fill in a form and tick a box marked single, when we have to pay a single room supplement for a holiday, when we are faced with a two-for-one supermarket offer that we know we'll end up throwing away, when we steal ourselves to enter a party alone, when we need someone to hold the other piece of flat-back furniture we're building, when we come home to an empty house and there is no one to tell about the highs and lows of our day, at these times and at many others, being single can feel like the raw end of the deal. Romans 12:15 tells us that we are to rejoice with those who rejoice and we are to mourn with those who are mourning. And sometimes that's the same person. And I would encourage you, if you are married and your friends are married and you live a whole world within that context, we are called to enter into the unique journey of our brothers and sisters who are single, to hear about the joys, the gifts and the blessings and also the burdens and the pains. And I just know from the past couple of weeks, my life has been enriched just sitting with some of my single brothers and sisters, listening to their stories, learning things I never would have known. Some of the conversations uh, that I found really interesting was talking about specifically the last two years. Those who experienced COVID through the lens of singleness versus those who went through COVID married. I know talking to those who've been married, sometimes COVID was really hard on your marriage, but also think about those who experienced COVID without a partner and some of the unique challenges that that presented. I listened with um, sadness as I heard some of the comments that have been said to my friends who are single. This sense that they have, they're not, they have not reached this level of maturity until they've been married. How they're talked about of, oh, you don't understand that. Um, sat there listening to how how many of our national holidays are geared for and cultural holidays are geared for romantic love valentine's days anniversaries weddings and how very little holidays are geared towards those who are single a practical application of this might be celebrate the heck out of your single friends birthdays it's something it's a way that we can show love and respect and honor in that way um, 
And in, in our conversations, it wasn't all woes. It wasn't all negative. There were some beautiful joys of them talking about the, the unique liberty and freedom they have to go on a trip or to go and make a decision for dinner without having to think about someone else or choosing their bedtime or their favorite show to watch. And the idea is not to pit single people as in a lesser uh, context or state, but rather it's a different context and state. And as those who are married, it is to our benefit and our wisdom to learn from our brothers and sisters in the same way we've encouraged those who are single to, to learn about the unique status of those who are married within our church. Which leads us to our last response, is that as the church, I'm, and I'm not talking to just the big C church, but our church, Light Church, that we would have a renewed and robust vision to incorporate the voices, the intellect, the wisdom, the gift of our single brothers and sisters into our church. And there's a few ways that we can do that as a church, whether you're single or married. Uh, number one is that we need to reclaim a biblical sense of friendship, the significance that the Bible places on friendship, that uh, although it values uh, the relatives and the blood family we have around us, Again and again, what we find in Scripture is a unique highlighting of those who are not blood-related to us, but yet within the family of God have been brought to us. I think about David and Jonathan. Um, when David's grieving his brother, Jonathan says, You were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of a woman. This is from David who had multiple wives and a whole messy love life going on. For Jonathan, there's something pure. I think about Jesus no longer calling his disciples servants, but calling them friends. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Four Loves, says this, Those who cannot conceive friendship as substantive love but only as a disguise or elaboration of eros, which means sexual love or romantic love, betray the fact that they have never had a friend. And so I want to just invite us in, in, whether it's within your open table, a friend you know at work or at church, that as followers of Christ, that we would actually elevate our level of friendship. And you think about how we have different ceremonies and opportunities to celebrate romantic love. And I would just encourage you, celebrate friendship, long-lasting friendship, renewed, missionally-minded friendship. The next thing that we need to do as the church is reclaim a sense of family. Uh, multiple times in the Gospels, we see Jesus' blood relatives come to him, and rather than him welcoming them in with a level of priority and significance, he reminds the crowd it is those who do the will of his Father that are family. It's not just Mary and his brothers and sisters. No, no, no. It is all of those within the kingdom of God that have now been grafted in. We've been grafted into each other, which is why I love in the New Testament, one of the things that we see again and again is the language of brothers and sisters. And I know sometimes that might sound like a traditional church kind of phrasing. I think we should bring it back because it's incredibly biblical. And it just reinforces this idea of a new family that's begun. And for those in our culture that for, for long times, decades and decades, hundreds of years, we have elevated the nuclear family, the husband, wife, and kids, uh, to an element that sometimes that there are single people who get the raw end of the, of the family of God kind of deal, and that needs to be redeemed. So invite people 
invite people into that. I think of Psalm 68, 6, which says, God sets the lonely within family. Not that everyone who's single is lonely. But we need to make sure that those who are single should not be lonely. Set them in family. Just a quick illustration for you. Uh, one of our really, really good friends, Matthew Wright, um, uh, has been a part of our lives the past couple of years. I just want to say he has been grafted in, not just into our friendship, but into our family. Just a couple of ways we've seen this. Um, when he's over and we're writing music, he literally has a theme song for each one of our kids. So Vienna has her own theme song that we, we just know and we sing now as a family. Augustine, in his top drawer, has a baseball, his first baseball ever given to him uh, by Matthew Wright. And so in his, his mind, uh, Uncle Matt is the best baseball player that's ever lived. And I just got to tell you, one morning, Matt came over and cooked us breakfast. Um, which was such a beautiful thing. I just got to say, they, to this day, are the best pancakes I have ever had. And one of the things I love about it is it's not just, it, it's something that has transcended the lines of we have our family and you can come in when you want, but it's this sense of, oh, you're, you're a part of this now. You're a part of our family. And he's taught us so much. He's enriched our family so much. And it's not that he needs our family as much as our family needs him. And I think that's the perspective shift. This isn't a bunch of single people needing family as much as there are families who desperately need the single brothers and sisters in our church to be welcomed in. And lastly, for those who have longing of within their singleness of thinking, will I have a spouse? Will I have kids? I just want to remind you and encourage you that within the Bible, I think about Paul as he talks about Titus in Titus 1.4 and Timothy, he says this, you are my true son in common faith. The Greek word here literally means legitimate son. You know that Paul had children, but they didn't come through biological means. They came through spiritual means. And so if you're single, I want to invite you to continue to see yourself as a spiritual mother or a spiritual father. Um, if you're single, that you continue to see your friends as spiritual brothers and sisters. And that for those of us who may be married or have children, to continue to welcome in the beautiful gift of our single brothers and sisters and what they bring. And the reason for that is because this is the picture that Jesus came to bring. Jesus came as an act of familial hospitality in one of the books I was reading and literally said that we have all been saved by divine hospitality. God has welcomed us into his family. He's welcomed us to his table and we ought to do the same. So in practice, can I encourage you to do something? It's communion Sunday. And before you run to the cupboard and grab some bread and wine or juice, um, maybe think about that. Maybe do that today, but maybe think about someone you could invite into your home this week. Invite them in and say, would you come and break bread and share a cup with us? Um, and again, reinforce the beautiful thing that our culture is desperately missing, that singleness is not just a gift to feed your own selfishness, but it is a gift to be poured out for the beauty and the redemption of the whole church that we desperately need. And if you're watching this and you're single, thank you for being a part of our community. And whether you have yet to be married, whether you've been divorced, whether you've lost a loved one, um, I honor the unique sacrifices and challenges that you face, but also the unique gifting and strength that you bring to our family. You're so dearly loved. 
Thank you guys for watching this, and we're excited to continue to journey into maturity as a church together. Grace and peace to you. Thanks for joining us here at the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit our website, lightsandiego.com.